According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 still, looking at verses 5 and following. We spent several weeks in the prologue, in the introduction, verses 1 through 4. And then uh, the last couple of Sundays, we've moved on now to verses 5 and following. And I want to uh, build on the momentum, I think, that we had a week ago in detailing these things. As we're talking about angels, and sometimes if you're in a passage that deals with angels, it's not uh, the easiest to deal with, and there's a lot of back and forth. In fact, we go uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, back and forth. The author of Hebrews is uh, nothing if not an expert in the Old Testament because he brings in quite a bit of the Old Testament in the proof text that he uh, that he has here throughout the book of, uh, of uh, Hebrews. In fact, he's going to spend from verse 5 to the end of the chapter proving what he said in verses 1 through 4. All right, we have a, a declarative statement that's made about the glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the center of the Father's plan. And then he demonstrates that conclusively. In fact, I think whether it was Luke or whoever the author was uh, of the book of Hebrews, uh, he was one that loved to prove his point again and again and again and again. And if four more scriptures will do it, then let's let's do four more scriptures. <laughs> All right, let's just let's just pound the point home to where it's it's undeniable. And so that's where we are. The uh, let me read the uh, the prologue again, and then we'll open in prayer. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages, or the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so this is the prologue. And the prologue kind of surprises us a little bit because the conclusion to the prologue maybe catches us off guard, particularly if we are eager to jump into some later chapters in Hebrews. All right, we're looking to contrast law versus grace. We're looking to contrast Old Testament with New Testament or Israel with church and something of that nature. And so we might be eager to get into those doctrines and into those, those realms of study, but that's not where the author starts. He starts with the angels. And he says, first of all, that he made purification for sins, plural, and then he sat down at the Father's right hand. And then very specifically, the whole point of this, the 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 the, the climax, the crescendo of this is become as much better than the angels. And right away we're kind of left, why? <laughs> you know, what's that about? Well, you know, I want this to be about me, not about the angels, right? And, and so we're going to take our time to understand that chapter one and chapter two is all about the angels before we ever get to Moses in chapter three. Yes, he is faithful as a son. Moses was faithful as a servant. Yes, there's a contrast to be made between Moses and Christ, Israel and the church, of course. But that's not until chapter 3. We've got two full chapters where we have to detail the angelic conflict and the information that's found here. And so we're going to do so starting with 
to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so that's where the argument begins, starting in verse 5, where the author of Hebrews takes uh, his readers through an Old Testament survey to prove that this is what the Father intended all along. This is not a, this is not a backup plan. This is not a, an, a, an emergency backup plan to plan B because plan A didn't work. This has always been plan A from the very beginning. God doesn't have a plan B. And so we want to be clear on that as well. All right. So before we start this morning, let's go to the Father in prayer. As we deal with angels, we deal with Hebrews. It's not the easiest of material. Let's humble ourselves under the Father's mighty hand. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, completely unworthy and yet made worthy. Father, who are we that we should be brought into your counsel? And yet, here we are. Father, we are here in Christ. We have every right to be here in Christ. We thank you for our position in him. We thank you for his position in your plan. I pray, Father, through this study that you will open the eyes of our understanding, that we will come to appreciate the glory of Christ as you have designed it from Alpha to Omega, the glory that he's entitled to greater than any glory ever before because he was faithful. And I pray that we would understand these things and we would exhibit them, we would apply them, that we would fulfill these things in our own life, Father, as we express these these very same principles in our our, uh, day and age. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so working our way through, and I'm just going to zip ahead. I want to get to the verse 5, <clears throat> and I meant to do this earlier, but I was chit-chatting. All right, verse 5, <clears throat> the great prologue with the eternal centrality of Jesus Christ is now proven conclusively. The author is going to go verse by verse by verse. He's going to bring in Psalms. He's going to bring in Chronicles. He's going to bring in Old Testament passages. And he's going to link them together in ways the Old Testament does not do. But he's going to put them together in in a very particular way in order to demonstrate what God is demonstrating in Christ. The centrality of Jesus Christ proven conclusively through a systematic, comprehensive Old Testament panorama. And that's what we have here in, in Uh, verses 5 through 14. And so if it seems like we're bouncing around, we're in Psalm 2 or we're in Psalm 45 or we're in 1 Chronicles or we're in 1 Samuel or wherever it is we're going, the author of Hebrews is doing this intentionally, comparing Scripture to Scripture, putting these things together so that we have the, the complete picture that God has intended for us to have. To which of the angels did he say? And we want to be clear on this. There are many angels that are called sons of God. And I will grant you that point. And the author of Hebrews will not deny that. That there are many angels that are called sons of God. The highest of all the angels are called sons of God. And we can prove that. We did that last week. We took you through Job. We took you through Genesis. We took you through Psalms. There are many places where the highest of all the angelic beings are called sons of God. But none of them, while they might be called collectively sons of God, None of them are individually addressed as a begotten son of God. And that's a huge distinction to be made because every one of them collectively are created. They are created beings. In fact, again and again and again, the Bible makes clear from the day you were created, from the day you were created, 
When God is rebuking Satan in Ezekiel 28, or as I like to call him, he's got a Hebrew name there, Chotham Taknith. When he, when he is rebuking Satan in, in Ezekiel 28, he keeps reminding him about the day he was created. And that's something every angel can remember. No human remembers the day of their birth. At least no one fought me with that last week. I, I was willing to be corrected. If you remember your actual date of birth, that's great. But I don't think any human does remember the date of their physical birth, okay, or the, the events of that day. Um, but angels do. They remember their creation day. They remember day one because they were created in full angelic capacity uh, on day one, and they remember that day. And so all of the sons of God that are angelic beings are created beings. They are not begotten beings. But Psalm 2 makes a big point of saying, today I have begotten thee. And it makes a big deal about today. And uh, the book of Hebrews will likewise continue that emphasis. It's important for the Father and the Son. I believe that the day of the Son's beginning is day one. It is the alpha moment of time when God the Father begets the human nature of Jesus Christ, when God the Son accepts that human nature and becomes the hypostatic God-man is day one of creation, the day one of time, that alpha moment from the boundary of eternity past to the temporal present. All right, And that today I have begotten thee is a big deal in, in Psalm 2. It's a big deal in the book of, of Hebrews. All right, And today continues to be a big deal throughout the book of Hebrews because we're told in the church age that we have a Sabbath rest. And our Sabbath rest, guess what, is not the seventh day. The Sabbath rest in the body of Christ is today. Day after day, as long as it is called today, we have a rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's day after day, as long as it's called today. So we're going to have a today emphasis as we work our way through here in the, uh, the book of Hebrews. Likewise, also that father and son dynamic. That father and son dynamic is so unique. The Holy Spirit, of course, is God, but he serves to spotlight the father and the son. The whole revealed plan is between the father and the son. And it's given to humanity. It's given to us. The angels are not procreative. The angels are not structured in generations. All right? Each one of us, humanity is procreative. Humanity, we're all descended from Adam. It's from one man that all humanity descends. And it's a father-to-son, father-to-son inheritance. That's the design for humanity. That's the glory of humanity. Angelity doesn't understand it. All right? And yet this is our, our blessing in the, in the image of God to portray the Father and the Son. Denial of Father and Son doctrine is Antichrist, actually, we're told in 1 John. So this dynamic, we dealt with this last week, and I would encourage you, understand that there is a very special Son. God spent 4,000 years and more promising this coming Son, right? And in promising that it would be a seed of the woman, promising that he would be a seed of Abraham, promising that he would be a seed of Judah, promising that he would be a seed of David and then bringing this son into the world. And uh, the virgin-born son of David, son of Abraham, the virgin-born Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that work that our Father put into bringing him to the world in first advent. So it's a big deal, all right? And to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The answer to that is none of them, all right? Especially Satan, especially that one, that one who was not content with who he was and where he was placed, the one who felt that he was entitled to something greater, the one who lusted after a seat he was not entitled to, 
Go back to Isaiah 14 and read his five I wills and learn that he was lusting after a particular throne to be seated in the Father's right hand in the recesses of the north, and he was not entitled to that throne. So this is more than just a rhetorical question. This is a particular rebuke against Satan himself. It'll have a follow-up, of course, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay? Oh, that's right. Not you, Satan. You are the enemy. Okay? This is, this is all about the glory of Jesus Christ and how the Father is exalting Jesus Christ. We move on to verse 6. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. Notice he brought the firstborn into the world once already. And then when Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, he was already the firstborn of the world, the firstborn of all creation, who came into the world in humility. When he comes again, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, we uh, ran out of time last week as we were starting to, uh, to understand this. Jesus has always been worthy of worship. The angels have always been called to worship Jesus Christ. But in his second advent, that worship is going to be more focused, it's going to be more demanded, and it's going to feature a diminished role for the angels. We're going to see the angels lessened from the glory they have now. The might and majesty of angels, the glory and the power they've always had is coming to an end. And they're going to be diminished And the role of the angels in their servant function in the millennium and beyond the millennium, the role of angels in their servant function is going to be reduced to almost, shall we think of it as a uh, a utilitarian basis. And we'll discuss that as well as wind and as fire. The role that they're going to have in uh, the millennial kingdom and beyond in the uh, new heavens and new earth uh, is going to be significantly different. So for now, let's just pay attention. I'm going to get to verse 7 momentarily. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So um, this is the design, okay? When Jesus came first advent, it was not to be worshiped. It was to serve. And he came and he died on the cross and he purchased our eternal life. But when he comes at second advent, it's an entirely different circumstance. He will be served. He will be worshiped. He will be glorified. He will be exalted. And the angels will lead the way on that. Their diminishment will be, will be a, a large testimony to what's expected of humanity in worshiping Jesus Christ. So when the Father sends Jesus to earth for his second advent, universal human and angelic worship will be required. Now, um, I don't know how much of this I want to repeat. <laughs> Part of me wants to reteach everything last week. Um, Understand what was prophesied. Understand what we're looking forward to in the millennium. The Old Testament anticipated it. The Old Testament spoke about it. But the Old Testament didn't know anything about the church. And so when we see some of these prophecies then built upon in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Peter, we have details that are added to the Old Testament prophecies that also contain some elements that that no Old Testament prophet would have known. And some elements I think that we want to be clear on before we proceed or else we get confused on certain things. I was listening to a guy on the radio the other day, completely confused over the throne of David versus the Father's right hand. And, and it happens. It's common. 
commonly felt that when Jesus ascended to be seated at the Father's right hand, that is absolutely identical to be seated on the throne of David, which is anathema to me. should be anathema to all of us. The throne of David is still unseated. The throne of David is still vacant. It has to stay vacant during the time of, of Jerusalem's trampling. And it's not reseated until his second advent. It is still yet future. Uh, the, it is still yet future. And uh, for the folks that, that want to reject that and say, oh no, no, we're, we're reigning now. We're ruling now. The, the kingdom is now. Satan is bound now. No, he's not. I'm telling you. He is not bound now. He prowls about like a roaring lion and we better keep our armor on. It just bugs me to death, this bad doctrine that's out there. I think it's doing tremendous damage. So let me, before I move on to verse 7, I just want to make sure we're clear on this because it's not yet. It's not yet. And, and Hebrews will make this point. It's not just your goofy pastor making this point. Hebrews makes the point in chapter 2 and it makes it loud and clear. And you'll see what I mean here on that. So real quickly then, Ephesians 1, 21 through 23 if you were here last week, then you already heard this, and it won't hurt you to hear it a second time. Um, and if you weren't here last week, then it'll be good to get it for the first time. But um, there is a promise here, Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. And the blessings of what we have now in the church age are extraordinary. Every spiritual blessing that's ours in the church age, it's spelled out from verse 3 to verse 14. Our position in Christ is here in Ephesians chapter 1. And then comes the prayer. And Paul has a prayer for the Ephesian believers. And he wants their eyes to be open. He wants them to know. As it says here, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Okay, Now He's the heir of all things, but a big part of what He receives is us. The body of Christ, the bride, us in the church age. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Okay, And this is, uh, this is Paul's prayer request for the Ephesian believers. My prayer request for all of us here today. Now, this surpassing power, this surpassing glory, it's a glory that He's not yet entered into because we've not yet entered into. All right. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He, this is God the Father, raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So understand what happened when Jesus ascended and was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Okay, Now those are the angels we're looking at. That's why this passage is so vital. We have to connect this with our angel studies in Hebrews. So He is seated and He is seated far above. And these angels are put in subjective, subjection under him. But has it happened yet? He's seated already, but has the subjection happened yet? When does the subjection happen? Okay, This becomes a point of discussion. And it's one that if you get it wrong, I think it leads to some very flawed um, eschatology and flawed present theology. Notice, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not at... And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So this passage looks at both the now, the body of Christ, but also looks forward to an age to come. All right, Christ is seated now, but he's looking forward. The Father says, sit at my right hand until 
I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's seated now, but are they in subjection yet? Okay. And you'd be surprised. People answer that in different ways for different reasons. Now, so we have the now and we also have the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Okay, now we can look at verse 22 and again we have discussion. Well, it says he put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, that's the intention. That's the design. When is it realized? When are they under his feet? When is the last enemy abolished, which is death? Has that happened yet? Clearly not. People are still dying today. Okay? So this is a deep study. I'm just, I'm just showing you some things that we're going to build upon in the coming lessons. Because there's the now, and then there's the age to come. He's put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, the one thing you've got to know about the church is we've never been together all at one time. Not yet. Most of the church is in heaven. We still have a living generation on earth today. The church will not be complete until that trumpet sounds and we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Then the church as a body will be ready to start receiving everything this passage is talking about. Head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, so next time you read through Ephesians 1, stop to recognize that there is this age but then there's the age to come. And everything in this age is getting us ready for the age to come, all right? Including the bride, including what he's doing in the body of Christ, what he's doing in us. If you think about it, isn't that the same as what he did with Jesus Christ? Jesus lived his first life preparing him, right? Everything he suffered was preparing him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Same thing with us. What we go through in the church age is preparing us for the kingdom to come. But it's not here yet. Because we're not yet finished. We're not yet prepared. We're still being prepared. See. All right. Also, chapter 2, notice. (laughs) People want to rip out verse 7 out of its context. It's amazing. Yeah, they love by grace we're saved through faith. And I I don't blame you. I do too. I love that. But understand, okay? Uh, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, this is Ephesians chapter 2, right? Raised, uh, made us alive in Christ, raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. We're at the right hand of Christ, even as Christ is at the right hand of the Father. But does that mean we're ready now to start ruling this fallen cosmos? Or is that still future? Is that waiting? We're not yet prepared for that. We're, we're still being prepared for that. See, we're seated now, but we're still looking forward. And it says so in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, aha, uh-huh, Okay, the church age is preparation for what's coming up. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You see this? It's a glory right now. You and I in the church age are being prepared for an even greater grace yet to be revealed. And it's in the ages to come. It's in the ages to come. All right. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15. Let's understand this for what this is saying as well. Then comes the end. Of all the places where we have in the beginning, right? Genesis, in the beginning. John, in the beginning. Colossians, in the beginning. The Bible gives us an awful lot of in the beginning passages. But 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the end. 
Then comes the end. And the end, the omega moment, the moment beyond which we, we cross into the dimension of eternity future. No longer is it uh, hard to conceptualize time because we cross beyond the end into eternity future. But then comes the end. And it's curious to me when we look at this, verses 24 through 28, we have the resurrection of Christ, those that are Christ that is coming, the order of the different resurrections we understand, including Jesus, including the rapture, including Old Testament saints. They come in a sequence. They come in an order. And then comes the end. When He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power, See, again, angelic references. If we're not studying angels the way we need to study angels, from Ephesians to Hebrews to 1 Corinthians, we're missing the point. Why do they have to be abolished? What happens to them? How do you abolish an angel anyway? How do we diminish angels? Well, we don't, but he does. And that's what we're going to learn about as his ministers are winds and his angels are a flame of fire. All right? When he abolishes... Um, and then it says, uh, I'll rule in authority and power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. Okay, so here we have language of until. Same thing we're looking at this morning. Sit at my right hand until. Now he's going to reign until. Okay? We have a millennial kingdom coming up. We have new heavens and new earth coming up after that. We have a thousand generations of those who will worship Jesus Christ on the new earth. And then comes the end, all right? Then comes the end when he's going to deliver the kingdom to the Father. Now, he won't stop reigning, don't get me wrong. His kingdom is eternal. If it's eternal, it doesn't end. But when he hands the kingdom to the Father, then Father and Son rule together as as, uh, co-regents. It's a beautiful thing here. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, I thought the Father was doing that. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And it goes on, verse 27, Um, notice, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, who did that? When did he do that? How much did he do of that? Is that all in the church age? Is that all in the millennium? Is that after the millennium? When does that happen? Can we put these things together? And the more that we do, the more we're going to see is the process starts with the church, goes through the millennium, but ultimately... The millennium ends with a rebellion. The millennium ends in failure. It's not till the new heavens and new earth when the full subjection takes place. When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. If the Father puts everything under Jesus' feet, what's not included? The Father, okay? If the Father puts everything under Jesus' feet, the only thing excluded then is the Father himself. Which is why after a thousand generations, Jesus will then hand everything back to the Father that God may be all in all. And we have that described here. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And again, we've got Father and Son, the way it was in the Alpha, the way it's going to be in the Omega, and the beauty of the plan of God there. Okay, you ever been taught that before? You ever been given an Alpha Omega overview before to show what the Omega moment is, to show the glory of the Father and the Son? That's where we're headed for. That's what we're dealing with. 
First Peter 3 also addresses that. Um, let me get back to Hebrews. And on my way back to Hebrews, let me just show you something here. Because, uh, in fact, I was sharing this with some of the men Wednesday morning when we had our training session there. Um, there's an author, and he's, I guess he's famous. He's writing books, and they're flying off the shelves. <laughs> um, and I expect it's going to be more and more popular in the coming months, sadly, because he's redefining pistis and redefining faith and what does it mean to believe. And it may be a generation from now, no one's going to even talk about believing anymore because they're redefining the terms. But anyway, he, uh, he is so insistent upon the fact that the kingdom is already now. We're already reigning in Christ. He's seated at the Father's right hand and we're already in this kingdom that... Uh, that you'd have to be ludicrous to think that it hasn't happened yet. You'd have to be out of your mind. Well, I guess the author of Hebrews is out of his mind because you'll notice in Hebrews 2.8, he says so. He says, in subjecting all... Are you with me back in Hebrews yet? All right. Back in the old days, I used to have a clue. I would hear Bible pages flipping. And now without paper flipping, it's just tapping on glass and my hearing's not good. Hebrews uh, 2.8, notice, again, you have put all things in subjection under His feet. Sound familiar? It's a theme. We're going to be dealing with this over and over throughout chapter 1, throughout chapter 2, the subjection of the angelic realm to Jesus Christ, to the risen Savior, is going to be developed again and again and again. You put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, notice, do we see it or do we not see it yet? We do not yet see all things subjected to him. Ah, okay. So it's not just a crazy pastor saying this stuff. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. The father has decreed it but it has not yet been seen on this earth. It has not yet been manifested to men and angels alike. We still live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. There are still Satan and one-third of the angels that have rebelled with him, and we're still thick in the middle of the conflict. It has not yet been brought into subjection. Okay? And you're a fool if you think it has been. Sadly. Sadly. Okay? Uh, you don't want a premature declaration of uh, victory. We did that one time in Desert Storm. We, uh, we were, I was in an MP unit, Army, bringing Red Cross supplies into Kuwait City. And uh, we were waiting for the message to come from the Marines. And of course, the Marines are always reliable. They, um, they were in a battle, tank battle, and they reported victory. They reported the action complete. Mostly because there was a commander who felt it was basically over and, and uh, they're just mopping up a few little details and it'll be over. You know, by the time the army gets here, it'll be, you know, it's okay. So they were a little bit premature in their declaration of victory. And we, of course, being the high-speed MPs that we were, we brought that Red Cross uh, convoy right up there and found out the tank battle was still going on. We had no business being there with Humvees and civilian tractor-trailer rigs and all the rest. All right? So, 
Where am I? Oh, illustration. <laughs> if the conflict is still raging, don't declare that it's over. Okay? It, win the thing. Keep your armor on. Stay fighting. We're in the church age. We're not in the millennium. Yes, we have been ushered into the kingdom. We are the bride of the king. But the kingdom is not yet on this earth. The kingdom is still not of this world. As Jesus told Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. Not yet. It will be someday when Jesus takes his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem and not before. Not before. All right. So let's look at verse 7. What about these angels? Now this seems pretty extraordinary. Uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, what does the scripture say about the angels? Scripture says that the Son is worthy of worship. What does scripture say about the angels? Are they equal? Are they worthy of worship? No, they're the ones worshiping. They're the servants. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins and his ministers a flame of fire. We have messengers and we have ministers. Messengers and ministers. This speaks to the entire spectrum of the invisible realm of angelity. There are certain classifications of angels that are designed. They don't go anywhere. They stay in God's presence. They stay in His throne room. They worship Him night and day. They are His uh, ministers. They stay there to serve Him. His liturgical service that they do in His presence. And then there's those angels that He sends out. The messenger angels. They're actually the lowest of all the ranks. Are the messengers. What we call the angels. But all of them together, speaking to the entire spectrum of the invisible realm of angelity. I like to contrast angelity with humanity, all right? And the entire invisible spectrum of angelity is, is referenced here from ministers to messengers. So whether they're sent out with messages or retained in God's immediate presence for liturgical service. And if you want, there's passages here we could deal with this. Isaiah 6 is a good, that's the holy, holy, holy passage I think we're familiar with when the temple was filled with his glory and Isaiah was terrified that he was allowed to see such a thing. He thought, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. What am I doing here? And then, uh, and then Luke 1, there's an interesting expression in Luke 1, almost a note of indignant uh, when Gabriel uh, says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And in it's Luke one nineteen, and when Zacharias is basically calling him a liar, you know, how will I know this is going to be so? I'm not going to have a baby. You know how old I am? You know how old my wife is? And, and here's Gabriel telling him about a baby, and, and Zacharias has no faith at all. And the indignant tone on Gabriel when he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And that's an extraordinary title. If there's only... If he's one of the top seven that stand in his immediate presence of his glory, then that's an extraordinary statement there. Now, to take an angel and to reduce him to a puff of wind, to take an angel and reduce him to a flame of fire, the indication is that these are passing. These are brief. These are temporary things. A puff of wind is only for a moment. A flame of fire is only for a moment. <coughs> How long does a, fire, does, a, does a fire flame up? Well, it might flame up repeatedly, but each individual flame is just that, that moment as it flames. 
And what's being contrasted here is this brevity. When we talk about making his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay? So that's the contrast. Forever and ever. Not just forever. Forever and ever. Right? And these angels, these mighty beings, these beings of power and glory, these, these, we think of them as eternal beings because they've, they've been around so long. They're longer, they've been around longer than humanity. But look at how transient he makes them. Look at what they're diminished to. Look at what they're reduced to as winds and as fires. The, fir- the function that they're going to have in the millennial kingdom, I find it interesting in that, uh, in that way. Obviously, wind and flame, they're destructive when uncontrolled. Clearly. <laughs> okay, An uncontrolled wind is not a good thing if it's knocking your house down or blowing through New Orleans or whatever it's doing. Okay, and Or fire if it's not controlled. But productive when mastered. And I like that. We've been discussing productivity in our Philippians class. We've been learning about productivity and how God is productive and how God designed us to be productive. And He wants us to make progress in the gospel or progress in the ministry. And so fire when it's harnessed or wind when it's controlled, you can harness it for energy. You can put it to productive use. And we can grind, you know, we can uh, you know, use windmills and we can grind and we can pump water and we can... There's all kinds of things that humanity has learned how to do. I'll get Chris up here to explain the science for you in a moment. <laughs> all right? When I step out of my sort, he offers to help me out. Um, and in any event... We get the concept, right? Science is great. As God has designed us to master creation. And God has put that mandate upon us. To me, it's curious. You ever consider, I wonder how many tornadoes are really angels that uh, the Weather Channel can't tell us, you know, you know by the way, Angel Gabriel passed through. No. So they call it, they call it you know, Hurricane Katrina or whatever. They, they call it a, a meteorological phenomena. And how many of those phenomena are actually angels manifest in the physical universe accomplishing the wrath of God for whatever destruction that, that he calls upon? It's curious to me, when you read Job, um, there's four waves of things that happen here, and two of them are human and two of them are, are weather-related. And all of them are motivated by Satan, which is, which is curious to me. I won't spend a ton of time on it, but are you familiar with Job chapter 1? And this challenge between Satan and God, <coughs> when Job basically uh, becomes the, the battleground for the conflict between, between God and Satan. And so it's curious to me, Satan makes the, 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 the vow, the prophecy, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. And uh, Satan proves himself a false prophet because this is not true. This does not happen. God uh, says, all right, go ahead and try, and it doesn't happen. And so um, Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. So there's the human agency of Sabaeans. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then the second wave is meteorological. It's fire. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Then the third wave, while he was still speaking, another came and said, Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Back to humans again. So Sabaeans, fire, Chaldeans, wind. The fourth wave is wind. And uh, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so we have, it's interesting, in these four attacks, Satan's four attacks, two use human agents and two use uh, fire and wind. In uh, interesting thing to me. Wind and flame are also productive when mastered. You can drive a sail or you can uh, use fire for... Uh, Energy, cook your food, heat your homes. All right. So as power sources, they have blessed and served humanity throughout history. Sailing goes back to the earliest of days. And even, I was reading, even uh, Hammurabi had some wind-powered devices for irrigation in the hanging gardens, of all things. But the eschatological destiny of angelity is a diminishment of their function and purpose. Can you imagine... In the future, when angels are reduced to a light switch, a power source, the fire to cook your dinner, the wind to do whatever, okay? Isn't it interesting? All the arguments today about renewable energy sources and blah, 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 blah. Well, what about in the millennial kingdom when our power sources are angelic? What's the kilowatt hour you can get out of an archangel? I don't know. So again, I need Chris to help me on the science on this. Okay? You know, I mean, if, if, a, if a house, an average house uses whatever, 10,000 kilowatt hours a year or whatever, you know, does a, does a single angel cover that? Or, or what else do you need? How's this all going to operate when God turns his angels into winds into flames of fire? Because this is what he's turning them into. And it's curious. When you look at Psalm 104, and this is the prophecy here, Psalm 104, and then it's, it's curious how the, in English, it's almost backwards. And in the Hebrew, it can go either way. I think the Septuagint puts it in Greek and gives us the best order, and then in Hebrews, it's in the, the best order that we can relate to anyway. Hebrews, uh, Psalm 104, 4. This is the original context for he makes his uh, uh, winds, his messengers, flaming fire, his ministers. And it almost seems like God is turning the winds into angels and turning fire into, into ministers. But it's the other way around. It's the other way around. And uh, the Septuagint does well in translating it. And I think Hebrews does well in adapting it as well. But what a contrast with God. God, of course, is glorious. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. That was the dimension Satan was lusting after in his five-eye wills, wanting to be lifted up above the stars of God, wanting to have his throne above the clouds. He was not content with his placement in Isaiah 14. And it says he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. 
And it goes on. But this is part of God's eternal glory. And what a contrast. The angels are the servants. The angels are the servants. And uh, don't confuse what they're doing now with what they're going to do once you and I are glorified. All right. The eschatological destiny of angelity is a diminishment. Is a diminishment. You think, well, that's not right. Michael's going to be reduced to going to be diminished? Gabriel's going to be diminished? All those faithful elect angels are going to be diminished? Well, that's not right. Well, now you're voicing Satan's wisdom. Satan didn't think it was right either. All right. But the uh, first shall be last. Angels were first. The last shall be first. Humans were last. Jesus was the God-man that created the angels. Understand the purpose of these things. And, uh, and by, way, by the way, Michael and Gabriel are not at all insulted. All the elect angels, your, your guardian angels, all the elect angels, we don't know too many names, but all the elect angels are delighted to be servants. Okay? They're not insulted to be servants. Jesus came as a servant. It's a glory to be a servant. So uh, the elect angels are looking forward to it. Chapter 1 even is going to conclude with that principle. Verse 13 asks, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all, all is all, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's their function. They're going to be reduced to a a diminished functionality and purpose for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. All right, different aspects there. But of the Son, he says, verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. How can we be speaking to God about God's God? Okay. Does your head spin a little bit? Well, it's designed that way. And in fact, Jesus uses this, and some of this too, when he's arguing with the Pharisees. He says, the son of David, is he David's son? Or why does he call him Lord? And uh, all of the the beauty of the Father and the Son and the, the pre-existent nature of, of God the Son before His virgin birth and before His incarnation. But here is God and His God. This is the Son and the Father and the blessings of this kingdom here. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter, is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And so when it comes down, when the Ancient of Days has to rule, who's He going to rule for? The son of man or the poser, the counterfeit, the fraud, right? The beast. When you read Daniel 7, you realize that the Ancient of Days rules against Antichrist and exalts Jesus Christ and the saints of his kingdom. It's a beautiful thing to see. All right. So we have the son Winds and flames are fleeting, but the throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. Winds and flames are fleeting, but the throne of Jesus Christ is forever 
and ever. Of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I kind of joke about that a little bit, but forever and ever is actually longer than forever. Okay? We, have, we, do, have, we do have idioms. We do have degrees of, of, eternal, of eternality. All right? We do have ages and the age of the ages yet to come. We do have the millennial kingdom, which, by the way, is only a thousand years. Okay? It's just a day. And uh, we don't want to confuse that with the Father's ultimate purpose, which is the new heavens and the new earth. I think far too many Christians are millennially focused when they need to be focused on the new heavens and the new earth. Because it's according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is on this earth. It's on this earth that's slated for destruction. And it's only a thousand years. It is only a day. Okay? We want to be clear on that. The throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. And so we have a body of redeemed that are eternal. We have a thousand generations that are born that enter into their eternal destiny. It's a a glorious thing to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. And now the author takes us from Psalm to Psalm. He takes us to Psalm 45. He takes us to an enthronement Psalm. He talks about the Christ seated on the throne. And it's a glorious thing when he jumps over to Psalm 45. And so we've gone from... uh, where were we? Psalm 104, talking about the angels. Now we're jumping into Psalm 45, and then we were in Psalm 2 not long before that. And you know, we're going from, from place to place to place, and it's like, it's like a, some kind of a, a crazy preacher that can't decide what text to stay in. And then the people are busy flipping their pages and going back and forth and wondering, you know, is this guy just rambling? What's he doing? Okay? Nah. There's a, there's a madness to the method, Okay? Or there's a method to the madness. But this is what we do. This is what Scripture does. This is what God does. Because He spoke to the fathers many portions in many ways long ago. But in the last of these days, He's spoken to us in His Son. And when you're going to put everything together in the Son, then you have to take the many portions in many ways and you have to weave them together in the tapestry the way God has designed it. And that means we have to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to be diligent to present ourselves before Him as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Let's look at Psalm 45. Are you familiar with Psalm 45? Psalm 45 is, is, is it's beautiful in its own right. It's even more beautiful with, if you have hindsight of a church age perspective. Because remember, the bride is not known in the Old Testament. The church is mystery. And so when the psalmist is speaking about a queen, you might imagine there were a lot of puzzles there. You might imagine that um, rabbis uh, debated and and argued and cussed and discussed and and that there were uh, targums and commentaries that that went through different uh, ideas about what this is about. Psalm 45, a love song. And um, we've got ivory palaces and we've got garments and all these great things here. Verses 6 and 7. Notice though, um, the fighting comes first. (laughs) All right, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you 
forever. It's a great thing to sing about. Sing about the king. Sing about his glory. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. Okay? He doesn't just look good in uniform. He knows how to use that sword. He's victorious in his combat duties. In your majesty ride on victoriously, not with a negotiated settlement. Okay? Victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. You know what? Victory happens when the enemies are dead. All right. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So notice, the kingdom doesn't come until the victory is accomplished. He has to win before he can reign. Are we clear on that? You want to visualize world peace and put a bumper sticker on your car? Great. Just visualize it as a result of victory at Armageddon. Visualize it as a result of blood as high as the horse's bridle for 200 miles all around. That's what it's going to take. And then you can visualize world peace. Okay? All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And so as the king is enthroned, he is not only has he won a kingdom on the field of battle, but he also has been provided with a queen. He has been provided with a bride. Now in the Old Testament, it's mystery. No Old Testament prophet knows about the church, the body of Christ. No old te- all that mystery doctrine about Jews and Gentiles being baptized into one body, that's all unknown in the Old Testament. But we have a hint, we have a glimmer. There's just a little foreshadowing and a clue with respect to the queen and these passages that speak here. It's interesting. So as we go through, um, it's, uh, it's a neat passage to deal with. All right. Before we get to the queen, though, the scepter of righteousness rightfully belongs to the son of David, the Lion of Judah. Don't ever, ever, ever fall, uh, lose sight of that. Don't fall for replacement theology. Don't let anyone convince you that the church has replaced Israel. All of that is just, that's all just figurative. It's all done away with. It is still yet future. The scepter is still a future scepter. It belongs to Judah. Genesis 49 speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah. It speaks of Shiloh. The scepter does not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it does belong. Genesis 49. I'm glad we stopped at two hymns. I wouldn't have made it this far if we didn't try that third hymn. Genesis 49. So important that we see this. This is the prophecy to Judah. It gets expanded, of course, to David. David is a part of Judah. But with respect to uh, the, the the prophecy of Israel to Judah, Judah was not his firstborn. There's Reuben, there's Simeon, there's Levi. 
but the inheritance comes to Judah. All that's detailed here. Verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Enemies, just like I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Christ has enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. He didn't serve as a lion in his first advent. He served as a lamb. But guess what? Second advent is a whole other thing. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Notice, the same scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. You ever study the doctrine of Shiloh? What is Shiloh? The one to whom it belongs until he comes to whom it belongs. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. You ever wonder why he came humble riding on a colt? He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So we got first advent, second advent, right there in verse 11. His eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. That's the prophecy to Judah right there, 8 through 12. And people want to throw it away. Oh no, that's all, that's all done. That's all, no, that's over. That's all, that's, God's replaced Israel with the church. There are no promises for the Jews. There are no promises for Judah. There's no promises for David. There's no promises for the Jewish people. If they want to have a future, they need to get saved and believe in Jesus because we're in the kingdom now. The kingdom is now. There is no future for the Jewish people. And it's sad because God himself said, I will not lie to David. These are future promises to the Jewish people. We better get it right. You can read some more. You want some more on the scepter? How about Psalm 23? Um, before we get to that, we've got uh, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. <coughs> All right, Lord, I'm almost done. <coughs> 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Okay, well, there's a song, David's last song. Of all the songs he wrote, you read 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, and you're going to notice he's called the anointed. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel declares, and this is his song. And we talk about the, the future, the greater son of David who's going to come, and we talk about him being anointed with the oil of joy being anointed above his companions. <clears throat> All right. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. When the Christ comes, are you looking for a politician today that can reign in this kind of righteousness? Uh, okay. This is Jesus Christ when he comes, who rules in righteousness who rules in the fear of God. It is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth. 
through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But worthless, the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. And so the, the eschatological promise for the son of David to come and to rule in this way. <coughs> Psalm 2, 9, I've installed my son on the throne. How does this happen? Every week I just run out of time. We may have to go to a two-hour Sunday morning schedule just to... Psalm 2 and verse 9. Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand? People's devising a vain thing. Kings of the earth take their stand. We've got this beautiful Psalm 2 here. And the Son is installed. He says in verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. As we move forward in our studies, one of the things we're going to learn is that the millennium is rough. The millennium is not uh, a honeymoon. It is not a, 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 a fun thing. It is a rough reign. It starts with nothing but believers, but it doesn't take a generation and now we've got unbelievers in this world that don't like the perfect king in Jerusalem. And they begin to rebel and they begin to complain. And at the end of the thousand years, they demand Jesus step off that throne and they secure Satan's release in the final revolt. The millennium ends in a failure. And he's ruling with a rod of iron. He's crushing his enemies. Every morning he wakes up to execute murderers. Okay? The more we study the millennium, we recognize it's not what we thought it was. What we thought the millennium was is actually the new heavens and new earth. That's what we should be looking for. All right. Two more, then we'll have to dismiss. Um, so that's Psalm 2 9. There's a rod of iron. Same language, it's the same scepter. Sometimes it's translated rod, sometimes it's translated scepter. It's uh, the same Hebrew stick. <laughs> All right. Same thing that he feeds us with, same thing that he tends us with. His rod and his staff comfort us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why do I have enemies? Because we do. So that's Psalm 23. How about Micah? Micah 7.14. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Whoever turns to Micah. God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets in many portions in many ways, including Micah, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. <coughs> All right. Um, shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. See, at the, at the Exodus, he brought the Jews from Egypt. At the second advent, he's bringing them from all over the globe. 
the regathering of the Jewish people is planet-wide. From the four corners of the earth, he regathers all of his people, and he's going to shepherd them with his faithful rod, with his scepter. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Anyway, nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hands on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They're going to be like the, you know, the three monkeys, the see no evil, hear no evil, hand over their mouth kind of monkey. But the Gentiles, see, the ones that were right there on the verge of destroying the Jews, and then Jesus Christ returns and defeats them all. Nations will see and be ashamed. Um... All right. You see, if, and if none of this is true, if none of this is real, if all of this has been replaced, if all of this is just a pack of lies that doesn't apply anymore because it's been superseded by the New Testament, well then, maybe verse 19 is also done away with, huh? Are your sins forgiven or not? Because this is the passage that talks about God who forgives our sins. This is the God who is our Savior, the God who forgives our sins, the God who treads our iniquities underfoot, the God who casts all their sins into the depths of the sea. Say, oh, well, I like that verse. <laughs> yeah, I want my sins to be forgiven. Yeah, I like that verse. That, that, that verse is still okay. Okay, it's all okay. Every verse, all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we have his kingdom to look forward to. And we're going to be a part of that. Remember, he's head over all things to the church. That's us. We're the queen of Psalm 45. We have these things to get ready for, which is why we got to be studying here and now. We've got to grow in this church age here and now. Father, I thank you for Hebrews, and it is so deep. And I know, Father, that we're not, we're just scratching. We're getting a glimpse at some of the depths, and there's so much more to dig into. But thank you for being faithful. Thank you for opening the eyes of our understanding. Thankful for all your grace and all your glory. Father, I thank you for the blessings we have in this church age, the power that we have, the glory that we have to be the bride of Christ, to be fellow heirs with the heir of all things. And Father, it's exciting. Yes, there's glories to look forward to, but for us and the bride, there's a glory right here, right now. The kingdom is not yet, but we are, Father. We are right here, right now, walking in the light. And Father, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the glory that we have in Christ, the, the blessings we have in, in the New Testament truth that you've made available to each one of us. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness. If there's things we've studied today that are just over our heads and too deep and too complicated, then make it simple, Father. Open our eyes. Teach us. Feed us. Communicate through the Spirit who dwells in each one of us, Father. And let this truth come alive for each one. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to dismiss with our closing hymn.